The time for the mass and easy availability of these weapons must end. And today, they will. Well, that was easy. I'm moving to New Zealand. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Nope, still ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM People Powered Radio in LA. Also in California, up in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and in Eureka on KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Goldendale, Washington's KVGD, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. In, in other words, pretty much everywhere across the country. You can run, but you can't hide. That's all I'm saying. Also, coast-to-coast and around the globe, just in case you are trying to hide, on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. And by the way, I wouldn't blame you if you did want to hide <laughs> these days, considering what's going on. The that, news uh, volcano that never stops. That laugh, uh, that cackle you hear is Desi Doyen, our producer. Hello, Desiree. Hello. Let's start here because this is hilarious. President Donald Trump on Thursday tweeted a poll featured on Fox Business Network, which included a great big graphic with the headline Trump's soaring approval, along with some polling results from the new uh, Georgetown University poll showing him with a 55 percent approval rating. That's right. Donald Trump's soaring approval now at 55 percent, according to Georgetown University, according to Lou Dobbs on the Fox Business Network. That graphic came during one of Trump's favorite shows. That would be Lou Dobbs tonight. He tweeted the graphic naturally, along with the text. Great news. Hashtag MAGA. It was retweeted 31,000 times. It was liked by more than 250,000 people. But there was only one problem. It was totally wrong. As Fox Business uh, later acknowledged in an on-air correction, the next morning, the poll actually found a 55% unfavorable rating for the president. Wait, say that one more yes, time. 55% unfavorable as opposed as opposed to 55% approval 
as it had initially showed. So uh, the uh, correction came from Blake Berman the next morning on air, Thursday morning, saying that tweet, citing the president's tweet there of their own graphic, that tweet featured a poll that was not entirely accurate, which Fox Business would like to correct. It was not entirely accurate. It was the opposite of accurate. In fact, the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service poll in question found a 55 percent unfavorable impression of Trump compared to a 41 percent favorable impression of the president with four uh, percent having no opinion how you could have no opinion at this point is a separate issue but yes trump's soaring approval is 41 percent not 55 percent and i'm sure trump went right out and corrected that on his own twitter feed nope the tweet's still there uh even more of those polled by the way uh by a margin of 57 to 37 thought a new person should be elected president in 2020 instead of Trump. How many? That would be 57 to 37 percent. For some reason, they did not put that uh, graphic up on the uh, on the Fox News for them. And uh, Lou Dobbs viewers like the president. Trump's approval is soaring. So I am glad you found us here on the broadcast for something closer to actual news. That uh, does not require that sort of correction, though I think we do have we do have a correction from uh, yesterday. We were talking about David Bernhard and the vote for him to become the next Department of Interior Secretary, Desi Doyen. That is and correct. You, and I was yeah. numbering the uh, the folks that yep. did not vote to confirm that were not physically there. Mm -hmm. And I uh, misstated the Republican who did not vote yes or no, who was not there. I said it was Sonny Perdue, but it's actually his cousin, David Perdue. From Georgia, Republican. Outrageous <laughs> error on the part of Desi Doyen. Thank you very much for correcting that. Uh, Sonny Perdue, of course, is... Uh, a USDA secretary. Yes, Department of Agriculture. He used to be, I think, the governor of Georgia. Yes, he did. Uh, the corrupt and unethical governor of Georgia. So he failed up to become uh, part of the Trump administration. Speaking of which, <laughs> some actual facts that don't get mentioned on Fox News from our friends at the Good Government Group Public Citizen today. This following that confirmation on Thursday of oil and gas lobbyist David Bernhardt to head up the Department of Interior. Following the resignation of disgraced and corrupt former Interior Chief Ryan Zinke, just in case you haven't been paying close attention to Donald Trump's swamp draining, here's what we got right now as Public Citizen notes today. An update on the corporate takeover of our government. An oil lobbyist now runs the Department of Interior. A coal lobbyist now runs the uh, Environmental Protection Agency. A pharmaceutical executive now runs Health and Human Services. A Boeing executive now runs the Department of Defense. A billionaire Amway heiress runs the Department of Education. A private equity kingpin now runs the Commerce Department. And a Goldman Sachs executive now runs the Department of Treasury. Now, you'd think that sort of thing would be troublesome to those who support Trump based on his con that he would clean up Washington and get the uh, long entrenched special interests out of there. But of course, that was a lie. And of course, the views of 
Fox News and uh, its affiliated pretend news outlets have so poisoned the minds of Americans at this point that the complete and utter corporate regulatory capture of every single federal agency now under Donald Trump will mean absolutely nothing to them, even if they did hear about it, because A, they won't even uh, realize it, most likely. They'll never be told. And B, even if they were told, they wouldn't care because they actually never did. They will vote as they are instructed to, no matter how counter to the very values that their brains had been previously pointed, uh, uh, poisoned, I should say, to, to make them believe that, that they had actually believed in. So, yes, we are in a very dangerous place where anything can happen. Anything has happened. And there are not uh, all that many folks on the right who are still right thinking to understand how they are being played. This becomes a very dangerous situation, as CNN points out today, for example, during Donald Trump's recent visit to the border at Calexico, California, a week ago where he told border agents to block asylum seekers from entering the U.S. Remember that? That is, of course, a violation of both uh, U.S. law and international treaties, which the U.S. has been a part of since 1968, and which, just like U.S. law, international treaties carry the same weight as actual U.S. law, at least if you believe in the U.S. Constitution, much less if you take a solemn oath to protect and defend it. In addition to that impeachable action instructing those uh, border agents to block asylum seekers last week by the president of the United States, uh, CNN is reporting today that Trump also told the commissioner of Customs and Border Protection, Kevin McAleenan, who is also now serving as the acting director of the entire Department of Homeland Security, that if uh, McAleenan were sent to jail as a result of blocking those migrants from entering the U.S. in violation of the law, that the president would grant him a pardon. That, according to uh, senior administration officials who spoke to CNN, two officials briefed on the exchange said that the president told McAleenan that he would, quote, pardon him if he ever went to jail for denying U.S. entry to migrants. That's how one of the officials paraphrased what he said. It was not clear if the comment was a joke. <laughs> the official uh, was not given any further context on that particular exchange. But it is a hilarious joke, if it was. Issue an unlawful order to a top executive agency official and then promise a presidential pardon if he follows the order by breaking the law and going to jail for it. The uh, this hilarious, funny stuff. That kind of thing leads to, you know, war crimes and Nuremberg trials. Yeah, at least when it happens in other countries, the White House referred CNN to the Department of Homeland Security uh, when they were when uh, CNN asked about this. A DHS spokesperson told CNN, quote, at no time has the president indicated, asked, directed or pressured the acting secretary to do anything illegal nor would the acting secretary take actions that are not in accordance with our responsibility to enforce the law. Well, let's hope so. 
I'm not so sure that's the case. I'm not so sure that uh, anyone who is uh, still willing to serve this president would actually stand up to him if he did issue an unlawful order. I know it's said a lot, but all of this stuff that we are talking about is not normal. This is not the way this country has ever been run in its nearly 250-year history at this point. And even though we've been uh, at it under this presidency for two and a half years almost, this is not normal. And every day is not normal. And again, the scenario I just described would have almost certainly in and of itself just that one thing. If that's the only thing that had happened in a two and a half year presidency under a Democratic president, it would almost certainly have led to the beginning of an impeachment hearing. Uh, for, well, I was going to say any other president, but at least any other Democratic president. But this news today will pass into the next day and the next as if it never existed as timid Democrats in the U.S. House and the Senate continue to fear taking the bold action that this country needs right now in order to save itself from what seems a never-ending spiral towards authoritarian, corporate-controlled fascism at this point. Now, I will say this. The uh, group of progressive freshmen elected to the U.S. House last November, uh, they are proving to be far superior, far more bold in many ways uh, as compared to their fearful, timid, cowardly, seasoned senior uh, brethren. But uh, just look at the performances from folks like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, not just on the policy front, but in congressional hearings as well. They have been killing it there, frankly. And now we can add freshman Katie Porter of California to that list as well. If time allows a little bit later in the show, I'd like to play part of her confrontation. If you haven't seen it uh, with the CEO, even if you have seen it, I will play it um, <laughs> uh, with the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase in the House this past week, uh, as it should serve a valuable lesson for fellow Democrats, including the uh, many, I think we're up to several thousand now that are running for the Democratic presidential nomination this year. Several thousand. I think so. <laughs> I'm sure there will be more coming in. My math well. may be off slightly, but I think it's close to that. Now, uh, th there are many places where we uh, somehow need to continue encouraging Democrats to be far more courageous and bold than many of them are now being, no matter how the Democrats have become accustomed to being frightened away from policies, which many policies, which are wildly popular with the American people, yet still seem to scare the hell out of these Democrats, given the uh, amount of right wing corporatist money in elections, right wing corporatist media coverage of those elections and of those candidates. And uh, frankly, the willingness of some of the, uh, those entities to simply lie about facts and what the American people really want. Case in point, there is a huge gap between Republicans and Democrats when it comes to guns and gun safety issues, right? Democrats want to take away your guns. Republicans want to protect the Second Amendment. They want more guns, right? Well, actually, no, not right in either case. 
Or at least it's wildly misleading to characterize it that way, and yet that's what we see over and over again from the corporate media. The, the fact is, there is a huge majority on both the right and the left, Republicans and Democrats, who agree on the need for a host of new gun safety regulations. Tons of them. For example, 89% of Republicans and 89% of Democrats both believe that we should prevent the mentally ill from purchasing guns. But in fact, this administration and the, uh, the previous Congress uh, under uh, re Republican control in both houses actually passed a bill to make it easier for the mentally ill to purchase guns, despite what 89% of the American people think. Uh, 82 percent, huge majority, 82 percent of Republicans. It's higher for Democrats, 85 percent. But 82 percent of Republicans believe we should bar gun purchases by people who are on uh, no fly or watch lists. But of course, the NRA doesn't agree. That's one of the reasons I call them the terrorist loving NRA. Uh, 77 percent of Republicans believe that there should be background checks for private sales and at gun shows. In other words, universal background checks when purchasing a weapon. 54% majority of Republicans believe we should ban assault-style weapons. 56% believe we should create a federal database to track gun sales. These are all majorities, and I'm talking about all Republicans here. And yet, Democrats want to get rid of guns, want to take your guns away. Republicans are in favor of guns. If you listen to not just the right wing media, but the corporate media overall. There is room here, lots of it, for Democrats to be a lot more bold on this and many other issues. Uh, so, uh, you know, th the fact is um, there's Tons of people on the right and the left, old and young, who may be willing to vote on issues like these if Democrats are more bold about them, particularly, by the way, young voters who see gun safety as a defining issue of their generation after they have lived through school shooting after school shooting. So what are Democrats doing to capture the votes of those voters, particularly those young ones? Well, not much, as my guest, the author of the brand new book, Guns Down, How to Defeat the NRA and Build a Safer Future with Fewer Guns. That's what he argues. Igor Volsky is that author. He joins us next for that conversation and much more today right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay with us. <laughs> The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com/donate. That's bradblog.com/donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. 
Well, less than one month following the horrific massacres at two Muslim mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, by an Australian white supremacist who killed 50 and wounded another 50 in a matter of minutes, a sweeping new ban on all military-style semi-automatic weapons was adopted by New Zealand's parliament and signed into law on Thursday. It takes official effect today. Well, that was easy. The new rules are aimed at removing semi-automatic firearms from circulation through a buyback scheme, prohibit, uh, uh, prohibition, and harsh prison sentences. The law uh, prohibits semi-automatic firearms, magazines, and parts that can be used to assemble prohibited firearms. New Zealand police on Thursday began preparations for the mass buyback scheme, advising that amnesty is now in place for the newly prohibited weapons, which are to be turned over to law enforcement to be melted down and destroyed forever. The hand-in amnesty will be in place for at least six months and protects firearms holders with, quote, good intent, according to law enforcement officials. But those who break the new laws will face between two and ten years in jail. Lawmakers on Wednesday in New Zealand almost unanimously passed the legislation by a parliamentary vote of 119 to 1. The bill was first introduced on April 1. Its passage in barely 10 days has surprised even the most ardent gun safety advocates, but yes, it was just that easy. The ban comes several decades after a mass shooting in neighboring Australia, which resulted in a similar ban there, which resulted in zero mass shootings since that ban was put in place. Meanwhile, back here in the gun capital of the world, the good old U.S. of A., we see some 32,000 gun deaths per year, countless mass shootings by the very same weapons now banned in Australia and New Zealand. And yet lawmakers can't even get a vote in both houses of Congress for something as seemingly benign as a universal background check for all gun sales. Why? Well, it's certainly not because the American people are against such an idea. They support background checks by huge numbers across all political parties, even including members of the powerful weapons lobbyists at the NRA while their leadership opposes any and all such gun safety measures. Its uh, members decidedly do not. A majority of them even support a full ban on military-style assault weapons. And as popular as such common-sense legislation may be right here in the U.S., it's even more popular specifically among new voters. Earlier this year, Axios's uh, Steve Levine reported that the issue appears to unite the very generation of voters that many Democratic hopefuls for the 2020 presidential election appear to be, pardon the pun, targeting this year. To a degree not entirely fathomable to older Americans, Levine writes, the defining issue for today's youth uh, youth aged 14 to 29, crossing race, age, gender, and political affiliation, whether rural or urban, is the long wave of deadly school shootings. That's according to new polling suggesting a stark new generational divide that may influence U.S. politics for years to come. Emphasis on May. 
John Delavolpe, uh, the CEO of Social Sphere and the polling chief at the Harvard Kennedy School's Institute of Politics, says an older generation would not understand walking into a classroom and thinking, this could be a really easy room for someone to shoot up. The same daily weight on an adult's uh, shoulders over bills or taxes is what children feel about living or dying at this point, according to a student at Ohio State University who spoke with Della Volpe. Their crucible differs sharply from the prior generations, he told Axios. The issue connects young Americans unlike anything except maybe 9-11 in the last 20 years. Among their findings, 68 percent said school shootings are the most important issue facing the U.S., 68 percent, and 70 percent advocated stricter gun control. 79 percent said they would support issuing gun licenses under the same regime governing driver's licenses. For coming-of-age youth, students being killed in school shootings has become uh, formative in their thinking. They blame the older generation for not keeping them safe, and they vote. Della Volpe estimates that 31% of those polled voted in the midterms. Doesn't seem like a lot, but in fact, it is nearly double the 2014 midterm turnout for this very same age group. Nonetheless, as Igor Volsky observes in a recent Boston Globe op-ed, as the presidential campaign season gears up, contenders have developed an appetite for big, bold goals. They're calling for universal health care, an end to Washington corruption, and action on climate change with a Green New Deal. But that presidential ambition does not extend to guns, Volsky writes. The women and men vying for the highest office still regurgitate NRA talking points or push for incremental policy reforms that feel like we're all living in a time warp. The recent entry of California's Democratic Congressman Eric Swalwell into the race with a clarion call for banning and buying back assault-style weapons may have changed that equation somewhat since Volsky's article was published in The Globe. But will it be enough? Or, as some Democrats have long seen it, are gun politics sort of the equivalent of the third rail for Democrats as uh, cuts to Medicare and Social Security used to be uh, for politicians of all parties? Joining us now to discuss all of these matters and how and if they will come into play as the 2020 presidential contest heats up is our old friend Igor Volsky. He is the founder of Guns Down America, an organization dedicated to building a future with fewer guns. His new book, Guns Down, How to Defeat the NRA and Build a Safer Future with Fewer Guns, offers a vision for solving our national gun crisis. Well, we could use such vision. A vision. Uh, Igor Volsky, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hey, Brad. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you here, my friend. Let's start uh, in New Zealand, Igor. There's uh, less than a month ago, uh, we had this shooting, this horrible shooting at this mosque, two mosques, actually. And yet today, less than a month later, assault weapons are now banned across New Zealand. What is different there? Why was it so easy there, Igor? <laughs> well, you know, I think they have a slightly different system of government. They have a weaker gun lobby, although one does exist, and the NRA worked really hard 
to try to influence the debate there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think the other piece here is that, um, uh, you know, what they did, uh, I think, is really important because New Zealand didn't divide people between good guys and bad guys. And, you know, even here uh, in the United States, even Democrats talk about disarming dangerous people. Mm -hmm. Uh, That doesn't make a lot of sense in a country where two-thirds of the gun deaths are suicide. Mm. Um, And that's also not how any other nation has dealt with with, with a gun problem. So New Zealand said, we're going to change the environment in which guns are uh, produced, right? We're going to ban certain weapons for everybody. We're going to make it harder for people to obtain certain guns. They're now looking at strengthening their licensing systems. And that, I think, really offers a lesson for us here in the States. So whenever you hear a politician of either party talk about, quote-unquote, dangerous people, remember that this is a political framing, right, that's designed to talk to some kind of mythical moderate voter who's going to get so offended if you actually tell the truth and say that the guns are the problem, that they're inherently dangerous, that we need fewer of them. So I think New Zealand really holds a lot of lessons for us, as do, frankly, most other industrialized nations, where this kind of crisis isn't an issue anymore. So when you talk about um, uh, identifying, you know, taking away guns from from bad guys, you're saying that is not the way to approach this? I mean, my sense is that when Democrats talk that way, they're trying to say, hey, we're trying to keep you safe from uh, such bad guys, that those bad guys should not have guns at all. Uh, but what you seem to be suggesting is what they're, the message they're trying to send is, hey, we don't want to take away your guns. We just want to take away guns from certain people. And that that sort of attempt to split the baby uh, means we're getting nothing from nobody on, on any of these uh, issues. Well, think of it this way, Brad. We were able to reduce car fatalities, not by changing the behaviors of 200 million drivers every single day, but by making roads safer, by making cars safer, by increasing the standards for car licensing, Mm -hmm. right? And we've been able to drive down car deaths by changing the environment, right? So it was more difficult for everybody. Um, I'm making the same argument here, that what we need to do is raise the standards for gun ownership and Mm -hmm. for gun production, because when everybody has to play in that kind of new, more regulated environment, everyone, so-called good guys, so-called bad guys or dangerous people, everybody is safer. But, you know, um, Americans uh, say that they want this, uh, and I regard, you know, things like um, universal background checks. You talk about being tougher on, on regulations. Well, that would seem to start with Uh, At the very least, the minimal idea of a background check for everyone who wants to buy a gun. But we cannot even get a vote, uh, despite the popularity of that idea across all parties, across even members of the NRA. We can't even get a vote on that in both houses of Congress, uh, Igor. So uh, how... How does changing the language change the equation of the uh, politicians seemingly being in the thrall of the National Rifle Association? 
Well, the reason why you need a bold idea or the reason why you need a bolder idea mm-hmm. that include a, a long-term goal is because that's what motivates people. That's what excites people, right? That's why Democrats now are talking about a Green New Deal or mm-hmm. single payer or breaking up the tech companies. Those are all long-term goals that we're not going to get to this uh, election cycle or next election cycle, but it gives people a sense of what they're fighting for. It inspires people. There's no such dynamic in the in the gun control movement. In fact, after the House passed background checks, expanding background checks, mm-hmm. only 16 of 47 Democrats in the Senate even tweeted about it. Mm. Not to mention the fact that they scheduled that vote on the same day that Michael Cohn testified, and so none of the cable news stations talked about it. It was only mentioned once in the Sunday talk shows when Chris Wallace said, hey, nobody even knows this happened. So, you know... Yes, it's hard. Everything about this is hard. But we have to start with our own advocates on this issue and pushing them to be bolder, pushing them to actually deliver on the promises they made us after Brooklyn. You uh, you write that expanding background checks to every gun purchase is an essential policy, but by focusing on individual initiatives without establishing a broad, long-term goal, candidates are already bargaining against themselves. And I think uh, what I understand you to mean and your references to, for example, the Green New Deal, the Green New Deal goes for it, goes for everything, and uh, allows the policy debate then to move forward as far as uh, what is and isn't doable, what we do and do want. Um, If you're calling for that same bold action from, uh, well, from Democrats and Republicans alike when it comes to guns, what would that sound like? What would the uh, rhetoric be that we ought to be hearing from Democrats on the uh, campaign trail right now? Well, I think Democrats need to establish a long-term goal. That goal, I think, should be a future with fewer guns, because guns are inherently dangerous and guns are the problem. And number two, Democrats need to go beyond mere background checks. You mentioned Mm -hmm. 79% of Americans support gun licensing. We also know that gun licensing, unlike background checks, gun licensing that requires you to go to your police station, get fingerprinted, pass a written test, pass a field test, go through a much more comprehensive background check, wait uh, some period of time before obtaining that gun, that that actually reduces both gun homicides and gun suicides. And by the way, the system I described is similar to the system they have in Massachusetts, where they have far fewer gun deaths than, say, neighboring New Hampshire. So I am calling on the 2020 presidential candidates Mm -hmm. to fundamentally reframe the conversation around guns to establish a long-term goal of building a future with fewer guns and to talk about the ways we need to raise the standards for gun ownership, for gun production. And by the way, when I say production, I mean actually regulating the firearm industry Mm -hmm. so that it stops producing militarized weapons for the civilian market, both in terms of the assault weapons and the much more militarized handguns that use larger rounds, and those rounds are coming at you faster. Mm -hmm. So... They just need to ask for what they actually want, and frankly, for what our country really needs to save as many lives as possible. I, I should also note, we've, we've spoken on this show over the years about uh, the ability of the gun industry to make 
smarter weapons, uh, weapons that uh, can't be fired uh, except by their owner or, uh, you know, other safety features that could be put into place by federal or state regulation the way we had federal regulation for seatbelts. And that, you know, resulted in a huge number of deaths that did not happen thanks to those laws. Uh, Americans say they want this, but they don't seem to vote that way. The NRA seems to do a hell of a good job in scaring people, um, you know, that the gun grabbers are coming. But it seems that you're arguing Democrats should embrace that idea and, yes, become the party of what the NRA would certainly use to tar them as gun grabbers. Uh, no worries about that politically? Well, look, it doesn't surprise me that folks aren't voting for completely uninspired messaging and policies mm. that are framed as, First, let's bow down to the Second Amendment, which is, by the way, a bunch of garbage. And two, let's maybe talk a little bit about some background checks here or there and closing some loopholes, and then quickly move on as, uh, as fast as possible from the issue. Yes, nobody is going to vote for that kind of message. I agree, which is why I'm calling for a, a much bolder frame and actually a frame that's rooted in the reality of the problem. And then in terms of the political cost of being called a gun grabber, Look, you know, Brad, you know I started uh, my career on, on uh, covering health care and, mm -hmm. and Obamacare. Mm -hmm. And I remember when the uh, public option was still part of that proposal and Republicans called it socialism. And then the public option right. was taken out and Republicans still called it socialism. Right. Um, <laughs> right? So they're going to say gun grabber no matter what you do, no matter what you say. In fact, in the book, I point out that the first time the NRA registered a position on the gun law, it was in 1911, and guess what the argument was? Gun grabber. So it's going to continue uh, no matter what. We should not be paying attention to what they say because they're going to say gun grabber regardless. Let me ask you, uh, Igor, you said, uh, just to let you clarify exactly what you meant uh, a moment ago, you said uh, that they're, they're talking about the, the Second Amendment, fears of violating the Second Amendment uh, as garbage. Were you saying the Second Amendment itself was garbage, gar garbage no, or no, no, fear no. of... I'm not saying the Second... Thank you. I'm not saying yeah. the Second Amendment is garbage. I'm simply saying that this notion that the Second Amendment is incongruent with gun regulation, that that's garbage. The idea that the Second Amendment uh, permits for uh, guns everywhere and for everyone was literally invented by the NRA after 1977. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea was um, was a pariah in legal circles, uh, was a minority view, and they invested millions of dollars into promoting it in legal circles, promoting it on the state level, promoting it in the media, all, of course, culminating in 2008 when the Supreme Court found an individual right to own a firearm, which it had not for uh, a century beforehand. So I'm very clear-minded about the fact that when Democrats or progressives use this frame of, uh, well, we have the Second Amendment and we have to be respectful, that it is playing into the NRA's hands. It is literally repeating their propaganda, mm. and it is completely divorced from the history of the Second Amendment, um, 
or even from the Heller precedent, which found, Antonin Scalia wrote this opinion, Mm -hmm. and said that the government has a role to play within the Second Amendment to regulate firearms. Uh, I, I know i got to let you go here, but let me see, uh, see if I can fit in uh, one more idea. The uh, newly declared Democratic presidential hopeful, uh, Congressman Eric Swalwell, as I mentioned, he is calling for all such weapons to be banned and uh, and bought back, not unlike what they're doing in New Zealand. Uh, do you agree with his advocacy there? And, uh, and are there any other uh, Democratic candidates taking on the issue as boldly as you see it? And I guess finally, will Swalwell Well's advocacy help to push the others on this issue, whether he's uh, uh, got a possibility of of actually winning the uh, presidential nomination or not. Yeah, I mean, I certainly hope that that Swalwell pushes the rest of the field. I I appreciate his comments, and I, I, you know, I'm going to be excited to see what his gun platform actually looks like. But being bold on this question of assault weapons is a good start. I would argue that he needs to go even further. He needs to redefine for Americans what patriotic gun ownership actually looks like. And I say that it it looks like an individual who takes responsibility and who's able to show that they can responsibly handle a firearm to their community and to their neighbors. That, of course, is gun grabber Igor Volsky, uh, <laughs> author of uh, the, the new book uh, published just this week. Uh, am I correct, Igor? That's right, on Tuesday, yeah. Congratulations. The new book is Guns Down, How to Defeat the NRA and Build a Safer Future with Fewer Guns. An idea who I would argue uh, its time has come. You can get more information at GunsDownAmerica.org. You can follow them on the Twitters at GunsDownAmerica. And I'm sure you can call Igor all sorts of names also on the Twitter at Igor Volsky. <laughs> Igor, great talking uh, with you, my friend. And I'm sure we will be doing again uh, near in the future, I hope. Great. Thanks so much, Brad. Appreciate it. You bet. Okay, let's take a quick break here. And uh, speaking of places, boy, there's a lot of places where Democrats need to be a lot bolder. Oh, definitely. And I think they could take some hints from their uh, new freshman colleagues in the U.S. House. We'll uh, play one of those hints uh, and a little bit more. A surprising clip also from John Kerry, of all people. We'll try to get to all of that straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back. This is the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Paul Waldman writes at Washington Post today, Congratulations are in order to J.P. Morgan Chase, the largest bank in the United States. It just reported that in the first quarter of 2019, it made a record profit of 900, I'm sorry, 9.18 billion dollars. That's just profit on Almost $30 billion in revenue. Truly 
Waldman notes, we are living in an age of boundless prosperity. He then adds, well, some of us are. Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, made $31 million last year, which led to an interesting exchange between him and first-term Congresswoman Katie Porter, Democrat from California this past week in a Capitol Hill hearing when Porter asked Diamond to consider the financial situation of a teller working at Diamond's Bank in Irvine, California, the location of her district. A video of this uh, questioning by Porter of Diamond has been uh, spreading virally this week. Uh, but as Waldman notes, it's an excellent reminder of something with profound implications for next year's presidential campaign. She had $2,425 a month. She rents a one-bedroom apartment. She and her daughter sleep together in the same room. In Irvine, California, that average one-bedroom apartment is going to be $1,600. She spends $100 on utilities. Take away the $1,700, and she has net $725. She's like me. She drives a 2008 minivan and has gas. $400 for car expenses and gas, net $325. The Department of Agriculture says a low-cost food budget, that is ramen noodles, a low food budget is $400. That leaves her $77 in the red. She has a Cricket cell phone, the cheapest cell phone she can get for $40. She's in the red $117 a month. She has after-school childcare because the bank is open during normal business hours. That's $450 a month. That takes her down to negative $567 per month. My question for you, Mr. Diamond, is how should she manage this budget shortfall while she's working full-time at your bank? That number is a start, is it generally a starter job? She is a starting employee. She has a six-year-old child. Okay, this and, is her and, first job. You can get those jobs at a high school, and she may have my job one day. So she, she may, but Mr. Diamond, she doesn't have the ability right now to spend your $31 million. Totally sympathetic. She's short 567. What would you suggest she do? I, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. Would you recommend that she take out a J.P. Morgan Chase credit card and run a deficit? I don't know. I'd have to think about it. Would you recommend that she overdraft at your bank and be charged overdraft fees? I don't know. I'd have to think about it. So I know you have a lot of... I'd love of to call up and have a conversation about her financial affairs and see if we can be helpful. See if you can find a way for her to live on less than the minimum that I've described. Just be helpful. Well, I appreciate your desire to be helpful, but what I'd like you to do is provide a way for families to make ends meet so that little kids who are six years old living in a one-bedroom apartment with their mother aren't going hungry at night because they're $567 short from feeding themselves, clothing them. We allowed no money for clothing. We allowed no money for school lunches. We allowed no money for field trips, no money for medical, no money for prescription drugs, nothing. And she's short $567 already. Mr. Diamond, you know how to spend $31 million a year in salary, and you can't figure out how to make up a $567 a month shortfall. This is a budget problem you cannot solve. Yeah, how, could he, how could he solve it? What could he possibly do Gosh. to help his 250,000 employees, by the way, at J.P. Morgan Chase? How could, they, how could he possibly come up with an idea to help it uh, so that his employees don't actually lose Five or six hundred dollars every month by working full time for his bank. Gosh, it's it's such a mystery. What I mean, she's he do? somebody working thirty five thousand dollars a year full time and yet still can't. I gosh, I just I don't know. You so, know, 
uh, good for Katie Porter here. Again, that's a congresswoman, freshman congresswoman from California. Uh, Waldman in the Washington Post notes that she's uniquely situated to do this kind of questioning, which Democrats, frankly, really need when it comes to questioning in the House. Uh, she's a law professor with uh, expertise in topics like bankruptcy, and she's quickly becoming one of the financial service industry's most formidable critics, he says. Uh, and he notes that she was doing more than just making Diamond uncomfortable there. She was trying to make the larger point, obviously, about J.P. Morgan Chase and about the banking industry, but about the American economy, economy in general. The point, he writes, is this. If you have a bank that's making $9 billion in profit in a single quarter, those were just quarterly uh, numbers I was giving you there. $9 billion, one quarter, with a CEO who, who makes $31 million a year, and yet people who work for that same bank cannot possibly make ends meet. Something has gone very, very wrong. And that needs to be at the center of the campaign of every Democrat running for president, Waldman argues. Well, there is a lot at this point that needs to be at the center of those campaigns, given how far off the rails we have gone. And this is true for industry after industry. We've just learned that as a result of the Republican tax cut now, twice as many of the largest corporations in the U.S. paid zero taxes in 2018 as compared to the year before, despite making billions of dollars in profits. Chevron, for example, made $4.5 billion in profit and got a refund of $181 million. So that is uh, your money that you are giving to Chevron. You've paid taxes. They have received your tax money. J.P. Morgan, he notes, could uh, give every one of its 250,000 employees a $25,000 raise, and it would cost the bank only about two-thirds of the profit that they made just in the first quarter of this year. <laughs> Those are just mind-blowing numbers to give you an idea of how far off the rails we have gone. Uh, how far off the rails have we gone? Well, if John Kerry, of all people, is able to destroy a, uh, a Republican in a debate in the U.S. House, yeah, that's how far off the rails we have gone. That's what happened this week as former Secretary of State John Kerry mocked Kentucky Republican Congressman Tom Massey for his ridiculous line of questioning uh, in the uh, U.S. House Oversight Committee in a hearing called The Need for Leadership to Combat Climate Change and Protect National Security. Uh, Kerry was one of the witnesses, along with uh, Secretary, former Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel, a Republican, testifying about the national security threat posed by climate change. About halfway through the hearing, Massey took exception to Kerry's opening remarks in which he had characterized Donald Trump's proposed task force uh, to counter the, count the uh, scientific consensus on climate change, describing it as a kangaroo court. Secretary Kerry, I want to read part of your statement back to you. Instead of convening a kangaroo court, the president might want to talk with the educated adults he wants trusted to fill his top national security positions. It sounds like you're questioning the credentials of the president's advisors currently, but I don't think we should question your credentials today. Isn't it true you have a science degree from Yale? What's that? Bachelor of Arts degree. 
is it a political science degree? Yes, political science. So how do you get a Bachelor regret. of Arts in a science? Well, it's liberal arts education and degree. It's a bachelor. Okay, so it's not really science. So I think it's somewhat appropriate that somebody with a pseudoscience degree is here pushing pseudoscience in front of our committee today. I want to ask you. Are you serious? I mean, this I, is really a serious me, happening here. You know what? It is, it is serious. You're calling the president's cabinet a kangaroo court. Is that serious? I'm not calling his cabinet a kangaroo court. I'm calling this committee that he's putting together a kangaroo committee. What, are you saying that he doesn't have educated adults there now? I don't know who it has yet because it's secret. Well, you said it in your testimony. Why would he have to have a secret saying? analysis of climate change? Let me ask Why you. does the Let president ask, need to keep to the it science secret? Of it. Let's get back to the science of it. But it's not science. You're not quoting science. I, I, well, you're the science expert. You got the political science degree. Look, let me ask you this. What's the consensus on parts per million of uh, CO2 in the atmosphere? About 406, 406 today. Okay, 406. Are you aware... 350 that being the level that scientists have said is danger. Okay, are you aware? 350 is dangerous. Wow. Are you aware that since mammals have walked the planet... The average has been over a thousand parts per million. <laughs> yeah, but we weren't walking the planet. It, it, it's. Um, let me just share with you that we now know that definitively, at no point during the least the past eight hundred thousand years has atmospheric CO two been as high as it is today. You, you go. When back. I was in the South Pole, when I was I wasn't at the South Pole. When I was in McBurdo, we couldn't get to the South Pole because of the weather. But I was given a vial of air which said on it, cleanest air in the world. It was 401.6 parts per million. That is 50 parts per million already over what the, scientists the, say. The reason acceptable. you chose 800,000 years ago is because for 200 million years before that, it was greater than, the, than it is today. And I'm going to submit there, there, for the record. Yeah, but there weren't human beings. I mean, there was a different world, folks. We didn't have 7 well, billion people. So how did it get to 2,000 parts per million if we humans weren't here? Because there were all kinds of geologic events happening on Earth which spewed did up. Did geology Earth. stop when we got on the planet? Mr. Chairman, I, I, this is just not a serious conversation. Your, your testimony is not serious. <laughs> I agree. When you, can't, when you can't answer the question, that's the best answer you got. I, I did answer. I, Secretary Kerry, what is your, you avoided my uh, colleague's question about how do you pay for it, but I want to ask, what is your solution to comply with the Paris Accord requirements? Like, what would you do? I, I, I beg to differ with you. I did not avoid the question. I said there are many ways to pay for it. He just asked for one. one well, I did. I talked about the carbon pricing is one way to pay for change. Uh, there are all kinds of other things we could do. One would be to not give a billion do trillion dollars worth of tax benefits to the top 1% of Americans. I'm one of them. So I didn't deserve to get that tax cut. Nobody did in this country at the expense of average folks who can't make ends meet. So that would be a fair way to start. You don't want to uh, politicize this, but you just played the 1% card. No, I actually played a moral judgment about what is appropriate in building a civil society. Well, what, That's what, what I my did. colleague Comer that uh, is Kentucky a, knows is that this will fall on the poorest of the poor. It's regressive no, when you're you raise wrong. the you're price of energy in Kentucky or Massachusetts or Pennsylvania or France or wherever 
Congressman, whichever house you're staying in. That is absolutely incorrect that it would fall on the poorest people because if you do it right, which hasn't been done here for a little while, if you look at the tax legislation, there are all kinds of ways to make sure that people at the bottom end, people struggling to get into the middle class, can be rewarded. And that's not what's happened. So, so if you rich. look at the distribution, we have the most unequal distribution of income in America that we've had since the 1920s when we didn't have an income tax. We have a country in which 51% of America's income is going to 1% of Americans. That is not a sustainable political equation. We have and a people country. Need to if you want to use 1920 as the, the gentleman's time has expired. People in this country are far better. The gentleman's time has expired. That was. Former Secretary of State John Kerry with Kentucky Republican Congressman Tom Massey at a hearing uh, on the need for leadership on climate change and national security this week in the House Oversight Committee. Yes, and he he brought up, Massey brought up a typical climate science denier talking point. Yes, of course, we all know that the climate has changed on the planet. The only reason they know that is because climate science has told them. So, yes. Climate changes, something has to make it change. Right now, humans are the ones driving that change, and we're doing it on the order of decades rather than the order yeah, of millions of years. Yeah, but how did it possibly uh, change 200 million years ago? Why did we have so much carbon in the atmosphere back then, we as have, he said? We have geologic processes that took place over millions of years. That's not what's happening now. You know, when you're bested by John Kerry in a debate, John Kerry of all people... You know you suck at debating. I'm just saying. Uh, all right. Thank you very much, uh, Desi Doy and our producer. Thanks also to my guest today, Igor Volsky of Guns Down America, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day with us. It is greatly appreciated, more than you can know. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Brad blog. And of course, my thanks to those of you who make it possible for us to be on your public airwaves every day. That would be those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. You are responsible for what we do here. Blame yourself, and I will thank you. <laughs> That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.